0: I had a lot of fun with our guest today. He worked on Yahoo Mail back in the day. He was at Nike where he was in charge of a major part of their content ecosystem. And when we talk about content ecosystem, this was massive. We're talking across the globe, not just an insane amount of content, but an insane amount of content authors and the complexities in dealing with the brand. Uh, he's now at Fidelity Investments, working on their marketing technology. Subram Morali is our guest today. And we not only talk about building teams, some of the challenges in rolling out content ecosystems, but then we start pontificating on what's next as we look at the metaverse, as we look at blockchain, NFT, Web3. We geek out a little bit at the end, but it's fun.
1: You're listening to C Suite Blueprint, the show for C-Suite leaders. Here we discuss no BS approaches to organizational readiness and digital transformation. Let's start the show.
0: Sobram, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, John. Good to be here. So I know we're excited to talk about some of the future trends and get there, but I figured a good place to start is in a little bit more of a grounded space where some of the accomplishments that you've had, because they're they're fantastic accomplishments, and I figured, you know, a great place to start might be. Some of your lessons learned on building teams. You built a, a great team at, at Nike. And then we can move a little bit more into content ecosystems and kind of the complexities and scale of that at a, at a global level.
2: Yeah, sounds good. Actually, we can start even from my first time. We I became a people manager in Yahoo. And I think start the journey starts there, in my view. Yeah. Some of the lessons learned kind of translated. So I, I can dive right into it. If you want, Uh, I think the, one of the hardest things as people managers, I don't know if it is talked about enough because it's not documented is when you go from being an individual contributor to a people manager, there is the first six to eight months where you end up thinking like an individual contributor where Mm -hmm. everything is about what you can do and what you can accomplish. The shift between it is not about you to it is about the team happens I think well into a one one year mark of being a first time manager. So for me, it was the same way, you know, in Yahoo when I I was an architect on Yahoo Mail, and when it uh, when the op- opportunity presented itself uh, to be a manager, I continued to play my previous role and just manage resources versus actually work on managing people. It, that struck a nerve only after a year. So I, I think that's where the journey starts.
0: It's it's funny. You you go through that transition and then you kind of forget about that transition for a while. Yeah. And then you revisit that transition when you're now managing people who need to go through that transition themselves. I'm curious any tips that have worked for you for for getting people over the hump. I know. One thing, at least with engineers, that it always worked for me is I would just force them to remove development environments from their machine. Like yeah. you just, you can't have a dev environment anymore. You're not going to be able to just do it yourself because there's, oh, I could do it faster. You know, I'm curious yeah. kind of what, what tricks you've used.
2: Yeah, I think the, the biggest aha moment came, I think it's one of my managers who said, you know, you need to learn how to remove yourself from critical path. I think the dev environment, I kept it for a very, very long time. I still run my dev environment on my machine. (laughs) But the critical path comment kind of struck a nerve with me uh, when I first was having that transformation. Because if you keep as a people resource manager or if your time spent is working with the business and the product teams and others to figure out how to get towards certain outcomes, if you keep putting yourself in critical path, then the entire team relies on your check-in or your single configuration update, or any of that to actually make progress. So then it's all about then balancing your time. Like, which one needs more attention? Is the stream more successful because of the brilliantly written algorithm that you are capable of doing? Or is it more successful because you can remove roadblocks for the team to actually be successful? So that statement, I think, stuck a nerve with me. And that continues to be something I, at least when I mentor other managers or talk to other people, I kind of share that as a defining moment for me, at least to say, Mm. put yourself out of
0: critical path. That dovetails into the, I want to take more relaxing vacations and sleep better at night factor as well, right?
2: (laughs) Well, I, I actually thought, you know, once you get that over the hurdle, you end up actually, you know, the kind of work that comes to you or the kind of things that are important to you are much harder problems to solve because when you own a piece of code, you own the outcome. Like you can make it work, not make it work, document it well, unit test it well, all of that. But when it comes to management, it's a little less concrete. You know, it's all about relationships. It's how do you remove those roadblocks, people problems, someone's going on vacation. How do you manage resourcing, budgeting? There is so many things that gets added to the plate. And in fact, there are newer skills that people need to develop. And to your earlier question, you know, that kind of how when when I left Yahoo and joined Nike, going from a technology company to, a you know, a product company and a big brand like Nike, I think that was one of the other harder parts of that transition where the need to talk to a business in Nike and need to talk to various other teams was kind of amplified when there were various things. And that's when it actually started Falling in place in some of the comments and where your mind was. And I think ultimately it comes back to what brings the person satisfaction. Because as an engineer, you finish thousand lines of code, you feel accomplished. You can put a check mark on a check-in and say, Yeah, I did that. Whereas when it starts moving into management, it starts becoming a more fuzzy on what you can pin your accomplishment to.
0: Yeah, mushy and, and messy. And, you know, I, I know a lot of the scale that you were dealing with at, at Nike is, is maybe hard for some to comprehend. And and so maybe if you could give a little bit of a flavor as to, you know, your content ecosystem, what are some of the facts that you throw out there as to how big, I remember yeah. hearing, I forget what the number was, even just the number of content authors that you had there was, was yeah. kind of ridiculous.
2: Yeah. yeah, first of all, you know, the back to that knee jerk, when we first came to Nike, you know, there was so many... The brand was so big and the initiatives were so widespread. Like the the New York City would have a separate marketing campaign. The global would have a separate marketing campaign. The campaign in China would be different, but they all would tie into a common message. Now, if companies going that fast and that quickly, and as Nike was always on the bleeding edge, what ended up happening is it was when you become when you start focusing on solutions you end up creating multiple solutions that don't talk to each other. So many were mm. vendor, vendor built. Uh, many solutions just existed because someone wanted to move fast. So one of from a scale perspective, yeah, if you add all of them up, there were millions of pieces of imagery and video every year that was being produced, and petabytes worth of digital imagery that were being put out there from various shopping to brand moments, to campaigns, to offer pushes, to emails and all of that. So if you put all of that in an aggregate, it's pretty huge. But for every team, every business who's trying to drive value, for them, it might be small. So from a scale perspective, when I came into that role, that was one of the hardest thing that struck me, where it was like, as a technologist, you look at this as like, why do you have that many CMS systems? Why do you have that many image delivery systems and why aren't we using a content delivery network? Like when you look at each of those problems as a technologist, it's easy to be dismissive. But I think when you get into it, you start understanding why they went there and what that accomplished for the business and how the business grew because of those solutions. Mm-hmm. So to change the mode from, okay, this is, as a technologist, you see this as a problem to how can you leverage your technology skills to in fact make it better for the business, I think was the defining statement for my first two years at Nike and building a team around that was what was the entire focus became.
0: And so now you move from uh, a people manager to a, um, Capitol Hill lobbyist trying to get people onto your side and convinced that, you know, this is the right way to go. I, I think it's a perfect example. I, I know people probably get sick of me talking about Conway's Law, but it's a perfect example of Conway's Law, which says, yeah. you know, however you design a system will be will be a similar replica to the way that you're organized, organized inside. So if you have 500 CMS systems, people are going to experience your brand and your content in in the same kind of a way. And
2: Yeah, it's not just you. I quote Conway's Law every chance I get also. <laughs> just to touch on that from an ARG perspective, I think when we started there... The good thing that was happening is, you know, there was a large initiative to move things to a more modern platform oriented thinking into the cloud. And there was a program that was focused on moving us to the cloud. So there was some buy-in already exists prior to people coming there and building our teams. So there was a, that was a huge benefit because someone had done the hard work to mm-hmm. position this as a need for the future. But the scale of it was still not there what it meant for business to actually adopt it. And uh, let's take content. Like when storytelling was a thing, there were teams already pushing digital imagery to the website. Now, the moment you recognized a simple thing, for example, when we put in a content delivery network, yes, the, there were content delivery networks being used, but because there were so siloed solutions, people were uploading full-res imagery into the sites. And that took made the site performance go down. Now, if your site performance goes higher, suddenly the more people come in, there is more interaction, it's much snappier and all of that. So when you solve that one problem, the win from a technology standpoint might still be a small one, but I think it tells a bigger story of this is actually benefiting us. So tying those two together, I think kind of grew the value a lot. And there were other pockets of work being done outside of various teams, outside of the content teams that kind of helped with that, everything from the commerce checkout area in Nike to some of the membership work. And I think the second piece was, it was also affording us an ability to attract a lot of good talent, where it was pure engineering talent. And uh, when we were looking at doing that, you know, people actually came in to solve hard engineering problems. You know, when, If you look at the sneakers experience, for example, there was a content play to it where you had to figure out how to put a stream of content on an app which refreshed quickly and how you can get that uh, richness in content by having a lot of stories available, not just a few that you scroll twice and the stories are over, but to actually build that experience out where instead of someone standing in a line outside a store, How can you build a similar experience on the app? I think took a lot of product thinking, modern digital thinking, and engineering thinking. So I think that was also hugely beneficial to attract that kind of teams. And we can talk about how the teams were set up and some of the motivating things there. But yeah, that was one of the big things that also took place.
0: One thing I love about that problem, and I know you and I have talked a little bit about this before, but when you're taking that real world to to the digital space... There's sometimes a a natural inclination to just try to digitize what you have today rather than like transform or reimagine what it is that that you have. And I'm I'm curious the challenges or, or how you overcome that common pitfall.
2: Well, not from a pure engineering leader, not as much from new ideation, but definitely if you look at some of the possibilities, let's take this, you know, the sneakers example on Nike, right? It went from standing in a line in a store to actually first come, first serve on an app, right? But then you look at, okay, if you're once on a digital platform, you can start thinking about newer and other ways. Like, can you have the propensity of engagement be a driver for offering certain benefits to people? How can you tie that to a membership play? Even if you extrapolate that to other brands, for example, where... You know, the, we talked about this last time. Where if you look at the thing between Web 1.0 and Web 2.0, the big difference between newspapers and the CNNs of the world is they were blasting information to you. And that's what people did in Web 1.0. It was all about a brand website, it was all about news being, New York Times replicating their newspaper just on a pixel screen, and that was defining for the Web 1.0 world. Now, if you go to the 2.0, it became more of the social interaction. You know, social networks started becoming a thing. User-generated content started becoming a thing. So there was a little bit of an interaction and engagement that kind of became the defining moment of Web 2.0, and that kind of also drove how products were built. Now, how that influenced something like a content platform is, you know, you needed to think about more of being a headless platform that can publish stories to any user experience, maybe a mobile, a web, an email, a push notification, something in China, which is a different app. Can you use a single system regardless of the requirement to deliver content in a standard format? that can then be manipulated and used in however you want. So that was the defining moment of that shift also. We're moving away from a traditional content management system, which is publishing pages to actually publishing structured data that can be re- interpreted in different ways. I think then that kind of was the defining space for the Web 2. Right? You know, time will tell what our uh, decentralized model in the Web 3 will get us to because it, keeps me up at night trying to read up and trying to keep up because the growth between Web 1 and Web 2 as exponential or that might be, this is going to almost
0: be like a hockey stick, it feels like. It's making me feel old already. (laughs) Yeah, it
2: feels like I'm being left out every day.
0: I know, I know. And and trying to figure out, you know, what really is going to happen. I, I've actually been reading quite a lot about that we're really, you know, within not just Web 3.0, but we're just within the fourth industrial revolution. Yeah. And what is that going to do to to day-to-day life? And what does that mean to 100%. to everything that we do as, as company and as people as well? Yeah. So it's it's totally up
2: for grabs because the economies that are going to exist in web3 feel will, will definitely feel different uh, you touched on this briefly right you went from a line physical line to a digital line to something which is digital native so i think it will have a similar transition in web3 and all this metaverse world where something there will be a shopping mall that will be recreated in a virtual world and that's where it might start but then what is the true virtual nature of the experience is something that people would need to spend time in figuring out because there was a great, here is a good example, right? If you uh, used an AR or an augmented reality set and went to, and there have been explorations on this, you're asked about content. You, there is one thing to say, you can look at a piece of art, like maybe an artist puts an art and it'll explain how a little bit of storytelling around the artist the moment you wear this glass because you don't have enough real estate in the physical space. Now, what happens if the art actually came to life? There have been explorations on the 2D art actually becoming 3D when you interact with an augmented reality thing. And th- those are all, many people have shown examples of that. Now, that just takes it and enhances it a little bit. The question is, what happens next? What if there is, I don't know, it's very hard to think about that abstract. It's clearly smarter people than me are doing it. But what will be a truly digital first, virtual first kind of experience? I think time will tell. Many people will. And even the interactions, like I think I shared this with you. And I was sharing with my friend. We bought the new uh, VR headset and we were playing with it and there was this drawing application on it. I sat with the drawing application. I was seated in a chair. I drew. It was perfectly fine. I gave it to my son, who's nine years old. He put it on and started walking around in 3D space and actually started drawing in the same application in 3D. Till that moment, it hadn't even registered to me that this could be a 3D diagram. And he was drawing coil springs and like shapes in 3D and walking around it and interacting. It was almost natural to him versus for me, it was an amazing thing to see him do that. So it means that, you know, there are different, uh, that thinking out of the box changes. The box itself is redefined right now.
0: It It is. And and there's going to be so many different skill sets and so many, like, even just the concept of how do you build a team? And what does that even mean in that that world? Right? You know, I, yeah. I think you you had built a, a very talented and large team, but was mostly centralized in in Beaverton, right? And, yeah, and, and maybe like, talk a little bit about that. And then let's then we can maybe pontificate a little bit about, you know, in a decentralized, you know, virtual metaverse world, what is how are we going to be building those teams? And what does that even mean? Yeah,
2: for sure. As we were building the team, I think the charter was pretty clear Uh, when it was engineering first, build software mindset, get to a continuous delivery, continuous integration mindset, all of that. Those are kind of the marching orders. So there was obviously a mix of people who have been there a long time and people who are coming in fresh. You know, you start with hiring senior leaders uh, who have managed digital native software engineers first so that's what we also did then when it came to actual engineering you know the i would say a lot of advertisement has been given by technology companies into what great technology culture looks like right i have a whole spiel about culture but that's for another day if you look at the googles of the world you know they have these foosball tables and tt and people define cool t-shirts and foosball tables and other things as Needed for software engineering. Yes, you absolutely have to cater to that. You know, even you're attracting such talent. You need to create the space for open collaboration, uh, having ability to have these idea sessions. Not to take nine to five timing too seriously. Just focus on the getting the work done, not when and where it is done. So all of those things we try to incorporate. But there was a little bit more where we had to focus on what does it truly mean from a culture standpoint to actually go after high performance delivery. Like how can you be a team who can become immensely focused on, I want to be reliable, predictable, and I can deliver quality product with absolute confidence. We need to move from issue you know, issue avoidance to issue fixing. If you, if you focus too much on issue avoidance, like if someone came and said, can you guarantee that this piece of software will have zero bugs before we release? I think any sane engineer who's been there would probably say, you know, I, I can be confident that nothing might happen, but I cannot guarantee. But if you shift the focus to, yes, we know issues will happen. We will absolutely be aware of that. But can we move to issue detection and issue resolution? We can. If we can promise saying we can detect the issue as close to or immediately after it happens, And resolve it within our next build, which can be a small build, which will not be a massive build that will take three days to make. That mentality also was important because then it creates an opportunity to say, how can you be allowed to take more risks? Why is there a fear of not failing? You know, all of that changes. So to me, it was some of those things which is less, is harder to put down on paper as a checkbox. It's more of how you talk about it, how you create that air cover, how do you shield certain things, there will be flack that will be given. You know, there was. I remember in Nike that there was a huge debate about code freezes. It still gets me going when someone talks about <laughs> code freezes, you know, or freeze windows, holiday freeze windows, where they will say no code has to be checked in due from this time to this time because we can't afford any issues. Usually what ends up happening is there is exceptions and some higher level person says approved and then it gets going, right? So versus if you, our constant fight was how do you not create a code freeze window? Can we trust the engineers to do sensible things? Those were all elements which I feel are more cultural than the just deep table tennis boards and foosball tables which need to be imparted in an engineering organization.
0: It's funny. I, I never really thought about code freezes like that, but it's a code freeze is almost like a ignoring that reality does not exist. Right. And there's always some sort of triage and exception process and, and it never really happens anyways at the end of the day. So why yeah. even bother kind of telling yourselves that there's going to be a code freeze? Yeah. I mean, That's sanity
2: it. needs to prevail. You don't want to check in a massive piece of code on a Friday night and leave for the weekend. Right. It, I get right. it. I totally get it. Holidays. I also get it. But I think the sentiment of a freeze, like thou shall not do anything from this time to that time, is what I take. kind of how do we get past it kind of thing, where I think the sensibility of not doing something just before a big holiday, I think it makes sense. But then if you're having your changes in a bite-sized manner, which is not just about code change, it's also about user-facing functionality. Instead of doing this big bang release, which will be necessary sometimes, but how can we build towards that big bang release with smaller things which are already integrated, that are already tested? You know, I think those are more tangible, fungible things that as an engineering leader, I would highly hope everyone is focusing on.
0: Mm. And, you know, in, in your ability to attract that team, like how much did the the brand of Nike and, you know, the great campus that you guys had, like how much did that play into attracting them and versus just your engineering culture? How did you balance that?
2: It's a fascinating question in in our day and age right now. Because yes, it's a huge benefit. You know, the brand is big. Many companies, the current company I work for, are all well-built. You know, Fidelity is a big brand, Nike is a big brand, Yahoo is a good brand, Yahoo's brand value started to dip, but we were still able to attract good talent. The brand definitely plays a big deal and Nike, you know, being so close to sports, if you're a sports fan and you happen to be in software, you end up being in the best culmination of those two things. But it only goes so far. It can get you into the door. You know, the bigger problem in managing a team is retention. How do you keep people engaged and motivated? Is the is the swimming pool and the tennis court going to keep you at coming back or are Good people, managers, challenging problems, is your voice being heard? Are all those the things that are going to keep you here? You know, is, is what you thought your job is going to be, is that is that going to continue? Those were the much harder things to do. And I remember there was a huge fear of demoing their work to the business because the business wanted everything to be perfect. We have to make sure that, you know, it's a big brand company. So they make a big deal about presentations. So everything had a presentation and everything, right? So there's, and this happened even in Yahoo. It happens in the current company. It happens in Nike, where if there is a two or three level senior member who comes in, it always has to be picture perfect. They can't, all the dirty laundry has to be hidden away. One of the things which I'm very, very proud of was I somewhere said, you know, that needs to stop. What if our dirty land ratio, you know, the, some of these leaders who are coming in are also technology leaders. They've also been in technology. They might appreciate actually seeing, you know, what it takes to put things across. So we started making, saying it's okay to have a demo which looked bad. And there was a very simple rule where I think it had a big benefit, which where, I, where a couple of us went and said, next time you do a demo, there is no projection. No screen, no projector, nothing. It happens on your laptop. Because it puts the engineers on their element. So you people have crowd over the person's laptop. Doesn't matter who it is, whether it's senior vice president, marketing officer, doesn't matter. You crowd over the laptop. At best, we will put it on the person's monitor. They witness the demo there and move on to the next demo. I think that had a huge comfort factor in it. Where people were like, yeah, it's my element, it's my console, it's my, you know, code editor, it is my environment that I control. And they were okay showing some of the cool trips, you know, ticks they did and everything. And it started becoming, I wish I could show photos, but it started becoming a little bit of like, most of our demo photos were people huddled around a monitor.
0: yeah. It becomes more fun. Yeah. All that pomp and circumstance is out the window, right? It's out the window.
2: And I think that translated to, and it was someone else's idea, and I won't take uh, credit for this, where they said, what if we combine this with a Halloween day, right? Where everyone dressed up in Halloween and it, it became a whole cultural moment where people dressed up, the cubes were decorated, people walked in, they still saw the demo of the work they did on the monitor, But it was a whole story behind it. They made it a scary thing. They said, here are all the scary bugs, and it became a hollow. It it was fascinating. There were 150 some teams that did this, and it was wildly beyond my imagination. The creativity was just insane. The kind of demos we saw, someone built a uh, maze through which you need to go and solve pieces of the maze to get the final demo was amazing there were everyone from the junior most engineer to the senior most leader who did everything which was i think culturally very
0: powerful that's great i think one of the biggest travesties to communication has been powerpoint to be honest with you <laughs> everyone being locked into that right this is yeah. one way of communicating and and maybe that's a good segue then into you know vr and the yeah. metaverse and And what are things going to look like that? Because everything you just said, as far as creating a maze and doing this, you know, that stuff is going to be so much easier in VR, right? Totally.
2: And I I think it's a great segue because one of the things which I said was you asked me what the power of the campus was. I think that is diminishing and going away uh, very, very quickly. Like I'm sitting in a nice office. I have my, my son's Legos with me. We have stuff in our back wall. It's customized to me right it's mm. it's me i take it with me i bring it with me to work what was happening slowly was if you see the even if you remove pandemic what was happening was companies were going down with flexible workspaces where they said no one has a cube people come in as groups huddle around get the work done it is very powerful you know it it basically um, puts everyone at the same playing field but even that i feel is you're, yes, you're bringing your work and you're collaborating. But what happens when you're actually doing the work? Would you like to have your favorite coaster next to you, where you want to keep your coffee, right? Because you know, my, my wife, my wife's coaster says "Drunk Lives Matter." Right? "Drunk Lives Matter." For <laughs> example. But things like that. There are certain charge keys, things, house plans, or something that you would like to keep in your desk, and that makes it personal. If you transition that into the thinking of how the newer economy, what pandemic has forced us is people are inviting people into their homes. You know, it's a little bit of, hey, this is me. I have protected this. There is no way you can encroach this, right? But there are moments where I can showcase this to you. Some choose to put a background because they don't want to showcase it. Some choose to put a blur because they want to show, you know, I have nice, colorful things. Some are willing to showcase. And that's goes with your personality. And very much of that decentralized nature is what I think is also shifting towards the metaverse and all of it, where you own your data, you know, not the big corporations. You own your identity. The work that you do translates between every network you go to. That kind of is the defining uh, structure of a Web3 space. So would that be a thing that will promote in going in future, maybe. There is still huge value to having physical social meetings and uh, meeting someone over drinks and or having a team event where you can make, make yourself physically available. It's still going to be there. But when it comes to actual work, would it still be necessary to sit in a cube which is completely sterile and has nothing around it? I don't know because I personally prefer not to do that. I, as much as I'd like to go in to have a team activity, if when it comes to actually sitting down or making a PowerPoint deck, you know, I want to have my
0: (laughs) space. Yeah. And, and, you know, and if we compartmentalize then and have that in-person time truly be, you know, fun conversations like that, even though this conversation is not in person, but conversations like this over dinner, over drinks, you know, that I definitely never want that to go away. Yeah. But but it, it definitely you we it's funny we, we're moving farther and farther away from the command and control leadership. Everyone works in this building to then empowering teams, empowering individuals, and I think we're just on a path for a hockey stick of even more empowerment to that individual. Via, you know, especially when you factor in like uh, NFTs and what does that mean to your value in technology. I might not work for one, I mean, it's already, you're already seeing it without NFTs, you know, you're not working for one company, it can be wherever, you know, I have this set of value that other other people can leverage in any way, right?
2: Yeah. The future is where dynamic, you know, borderless organizations without any hierarchy that they can undertake some kind of value creation. I mean, that becomes the foundation of how I think, again, I'm very new, I, I shouldn't I'm no expert in the space. I'm internalizing this as we go. But that value creation and that creator economy, I think is where we are heading towards. Because think of what the NFT world has done or something like the Bored Ape Yacht Club that is happening right now, right? There is a non-fungible token that represents your membership towards something. You then collaborate. If you take that to a song artist, You can completely eliminate these big studio houses that take a huge percentage out of it because every time your song is used or somewhere else, you get a link to that because it is your entity and you own it. You completely are empowered to build it. I think it is creating that economy in so many interesting ways. I think about like, Even if you took some of the newer jobs that are coming up, right? People are getting into NFT creation like full-time. Today in the blockchain world, the gas prices are fairly high and it's still, there is a little bit of uncertainty about some of these things. But I think it'll get to a point where people will get paid to play certain things. People will get paid to participate in certain things. You know, people will get paid to create or use their creativity in certain things. They will... They might get paid to judge or filter out certain elements, right? Everyone participates and owns a piece of the larger value that is being created versus a single organization saying, I know best, you come and get it delivered for me and we will share back. I think that will be disrupted in some way. When, how time will tell, again, I'm I'm very new to the space, I shouldn't comment, but That's where I think the work lifestyle might also change.
0: I love pontificating. Yeah, I mean, there's so many unknowns that that I can't even wrap my head around. But it it does feel like there's many organizations across all industries that should probably be looking at themselves and saying, am I just a middleman right now? And is that going to go away in the future? And Mm -hmm. on the flip side, as much as I love the idea of everything being decentralized, there will be new middleman type of organizations to help you navigate that. Right. And like, what do those look like? And um, I think that that's really exciting.
2: There will be, there will always be some kind of like the person who envisions the idea would have a higher stake in it. Right. Even obviously because they were initiated and people are following that idea. It will afford a lot of that to happen, it would be very interesting to see how finance, you know, e-commerce, and gaming is usually the earliest adopter, so we know gaming is going crazy. But even the whole notion of independent, all these centralized organizations saying, you create this character in my game, you can use it on my game, gaming platform. What happens in this economy where you can take your skills that you gained, maybe you are someone who is an excellent uh, parry. You know, you you can block attacks really well. Shouldn't that translate to other games? Because that becomes your core skill set. Maybe you can rent out your ability for a little bit. You know, there are many of these opportunities which are fascinating to think about. Maybe there is an opportunity to have a shared basket where you can put together an outfit from four or five different websites and it's your basket you are pulling together an outfit for you, and you're shopping on four different sites. You know, maybe that becomes a thing. It's it is interesting. It is definitely
0: interesting. I could brainstorm with you for hours on that. So maybe what we do next is you and I could do a uh, we'll do a podcast in the metaverse where all we do is talk about <laughs> all sorts of crazy ideas.
2: Yeah, me Sound and a good? Good, a good friend of mine have been frivolously trying to avoid you know get through our former and see if we can get in on some of these things. You know, we did a couple of meetings on the on the Metaverse to see how that would go. Yeah, that would be fun to do because, the, and I think I mentioned this to you, right? There is a, right now it feels gimmicky. It feels mm-hmm. like it's a novelty. Oh, see how cool this is. You can turn and do that. Oh, you can actually use your pen to write something. Oh, see, you can, your fingers are visible on the virtual space. All of that is, I would say it is novelty factor. It's new, it feels fresh. There is a moment in time if you're in a conversation where the novelty blurs away and it actually becomes immersive. I think that is when the fun really is because then you're having an eye-to-eye, eye contact conversation instead of staring at a 2D screen, most probably at yourself to actually looking someone and turning from one end of the room to another end of the room, albeit virtual, You know, being able to get up and walk to a board in a virtual space, which you're physically doing and still do it. I think that when the novelty fades away, there is value there. I still am very eager to see where AR takes us because I think that is more exciting than VR, you know, uh, to me. Mm -hmm. But getting in on some of those interactions early, I think will be useful because somewhere the novelty needs to die down. You know, the novelty of having an iPad was there when the iPad came, you know, everyone was carrying like this, people didn't know if they had to hold it like that, they didn't (laughs) know whether it needed an iPad, people didn't know whether to give it a pen, there was all that novelty on it, right? I remember in Amazon, they sold many cases with the grip in the back because they didn't (laughs) want to hold it like that,
0: you know? You know, what I've been loving is the, um, I agree, it's a little quirky, but what I do love, the audio is so much better as far as interacting with humans, right? So you can have people on the other side of the room, and it's not like with on Zoom or whatever, it's not all the same volume. You can have people on the other side of the room quietly having a conversation and not bothering the rest of the people. And that's 100%. that's been something that I think, you know, Zoom and these 2D things really get wrong. It's funny you talk about, I, I started trying to get better at the whiteboard in there as well. Yeah. Perfect example, though, of just digitizing an experience that we have today when like, should we even be using a whiteboard in there? Should we be using something completely different? Right? Exactly. Maybe
2: it is something completely different. And maybe if Elon Musk has his way the chip in your brain should be telling you ideas as is, you know, it's, <laughs> it's crazy <laughs> to even think about it, but it, it is not outside the realm of possibility sometimes when you have these crazy dream ideas. But yeah, but I think the novelty factor as it wears away, I remember the first time the wireless headphones came in, you know, the ones that go into your ear, People were constantly tapping to see if you can receive a call, it wouldn't work, then you would remove it, put your phone in your ear. I've done that multiple times. Mm -hmm. When you're running, the battery dies off and you don't know how to put them in your pocket because it falls off. The wired ones were better, you could at least hang. Like There were many things like that which I think were fascinating to see how the novelty kind of comes in and goes. But uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch.
0: Yeah, it's accelerating quickly, but a lot of those same patterns that you're talking about, you're, you're seeing the same exact patterns manifest. Yeah. So to be continued Subraman, we'll definitely do this in the metaverse next. Thanks yeah. so much for, for joining me. Enjoyed it.
2: Appreciate it. Uh, this was fun to talk about and uh, some reliving, some memories, uh, it was fun. Thanks for having
0: me. Absolutely, thanks Subraman.
1: Technology should serve vision, not set it. At Intevity, we design clear blueprints for organizational readiness and digital transformation that allow companies to chart new paths. Then we drive the implementation of those plans with our client partners in service of growth. Find out more at wwwintevitycom forward slash podcast. You've been listening to C-Suite Blueprint. If you like what you've heard, be sure to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could leave a rating. Just give us however many stars you think we deserve. Until next time.